All right, again, you should have received a yellow gold copy. Uh, I was going to go fewer on my slides tonight. I ended up with 40, but the slides are not as detailed, and there's a lot of Bible that we're talking about tonight. So the slides up here are mostly Bible. Um, In order to keep you from getting lost, I gave you an outline. There's a front and a back to it, uh, so you can follow follow along there. if, if that doesn't help you, it's designed to kind of help you know where we are in the big picture. Because uh, I, I don't want you to get lost. Um, for those of you who are new, this is week seven in a series where we have been tracing through the scriptures and trying to get an idea of what the big picture of, of the whole Bible is. And I would encourage you, there's a sense of where this is much more teaching oriented. There's a lot of content. And hopefully, if you've been with us for several weeks, uh, you may not be getting the details, but hopefully you're getting the big picture. That's really, that's really the goal, the big story. And I was thinking recently on why, why should we study the Bible like this? Why shouldn't I just stand up here and preach tonight? And there's a reason for that. Um, I was reading a book recently uh, on the advantages of ministers knowing Greek and Hebrew language. And and one of the Greek professors, he, he put it like this, and it's relevant to us. He said, he said when, you're study, when you're studying something hard like this, you're storing up power for the future. And I like that idea. It's like you're storing up power for the future, and time that is spent storing up power is never lost. I pray that what will happen is that the bulk of my praying for this, uh, this seminar has been that this would be stored up power. That as you read the scriptures later, even decades later, that there would be new connections that are made um, because of God's kindness and the ways that we're talking about some, some of these things. Uh, if you're new with us tonight, you may not track all of what we're doing, and that's fine. Um, but uh, hopefully it will be beneficial for you for you anyways. Uh, just a brief, a brief word of review. I can't review all of where we've come from, but the big picture of what we're doing is we're tracing all the way through the story of the Bible by looking at the kingdom of God. What is God's kingdom? And we've said that God's kingdom is what? God's in God's under God's. So God's people and God's place under God's rule. And the Bible is not flat. It's not one scene. It's not one simple story. It's over thousands of years and God is unfolding his revelation. And so we've said in order to be good students of the Bible and in order to understand the Bible, we've got to understand that God has been unfolding like a, you remember those big crazy maps? I know we don't have these anymore. You remember those big crazy maps that you would like lose your religion trying to fold after, right? Some of the, I've got an uncle that still uses these things, right? The, the Bible is in a sense like that. It's, it is, it's unfolding and it's not done. The Bible's done, but God's revelation is not done. This is why there's a lot in apocalyptic literature that just blows your mind, right? Because you can't see the rest of the map. God is slowly unfolding it. So we've been saying that the best way or a way to keep up with this is by thinking wherever you are in the Bible, who is God's people, where is God's place, and what is God's rule like? Okay? So that's the best big picture summary that I can do with the time that I have. Um, however, I want to transition from last week. I know lots of folks were traveling last week. Last week, we looked at the prophetic hope. 
And in the prophetic hope, we were seeing how the Old Testament, it, it ended with this strange new type of hope. A hope of a second exodus, right? Everybody knows what the first exodus is, where God redeemed his people out of slavery, right? But it's looking for a second exodus. Well, why do we need a second exodus? Well, God's people at that time, because of sin, had been sent out of God's place, out of, out of Canaan, and they were in exile. So part of them had been conquered by the Assyrians, part by the Babylonians, and God was giving all these promises through the prophets, saying, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back together. And there's all these incredible promises from the prophets that, that, we, were, that we were looking at. And the big promise, the prophets were promising that there will be another exodus, right? Because if you're, if you're in slavery in Babylon, well, you need another exodus to get back out. So they were promising this, this second exodus, but it, the prophets wrote about it like it was going to be so much bigger and so much more glorious than the first exodus. And we saw some of that happening. happening. We saw some of the people coming out of Babylon back into Jerusalem, right? If you've read Nehemiah or Ezra, right, you have an idea of what this is like. There's a return of some of the people to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the walls and they rebuilt the city and the temple. But it was clear that this new temple was not like the big, better temple that Ezekiel talked about, right? If you've read Ezekiel and your brain has just exploded trying to understand it, there's like wheels and wheels and water coming out of temples and all this wild stuff, right? But the big part of Ezekiel is where Ezekiel is looking ahead and he sees a new temple, a bigger, way bigger, better, glorious temple. And this temple has a water problem. It's got a river that flows out of it, right? And that river is blessing all of the world, kind of like Eden, right? So we saw that they were promising this, this temple. Ezekiel is promising this temple, but the new temple that was like rebuilt, it, after the exile, it, that definitely wasn't it. First of all, it was smaller than the first one. So that couldn't be it. And we, most importantly, we looked at the post-exilic prophets, right? The prophets who were writing after the exile. And those prophets were making a very important point because they kept talking about all these future promises as if they hadn't happened yet. Okay? And what we saw is that they looked into the future and saw a time where God was going to act in a way that he was going to fulfill all his promises and bring about covenant blessings. I think it's best, in fact, to think about two types of exile. Spiritual exile and physical exile. So here's what this means. The people of Israel returned from exile after 70 years, but that was a physical return. Okay, uh, They hadn't returned spiritually because they were still worshiping other gods. This will really help you understand the prophets. One of my professors, or an author I read, somebody, I don't know who said this, he put it like this. He said, you can get the people out of Babylon, but how do you get Babylon out of the people? Right? That's the spiritual. God's people were back in God's place, but they still didn't worship him. There's still a problem. And if God's kingdom is going to come, then God's people have to be in God's place under God's rule so they can enjoy his blessing. Well, they weren't doing that. 
So something had to change, and the prophets were looking ahead, and they were longing not for the people just to be delivered physically, but for them to be delivered spiritually. And this is how we saw Second Chronicles ended, looking ahead to where they will be spiritually set free. But the very last of the prophets, in, in, our, in our arrangement of the Old Testament, the very last of the prophets in Malachi, he looked ahead and he said it like this, and I think this is helpful. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to what? His temple, his place, and the messenger of what? The covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming. Right? Something bigger and better is coming. And he's going to have a messenger ahead of him. Okay? Now, let me just go ahead and prepare you. I think and I hope that for some of you tonight will, will blow your mind. Uh, you may hear some things you never heard before. You may hear some things that you disagree with. Uh, that's fine. Just think for yourself. Process it yourself. Figure out why do you believe what you believe. What are your questions? What do you not understand very well? And, and, and go from there. Um, but I'm praying that this will excite you to know the Bible. Because the Bible is indeed a treasure. So, let's talk now about the promised kingdom. If you're following along on your big chart with eight, nine columns, you'll see the promised kingdom is, is one, of those, one of those columns, okay? And this is really dealing with the gospels, right? Last week we dealt with the prophets, tonight we're dealing with the gospels. The very beginning of the gospels begin with an exciting, what? Genealogy. Right? If you're going to write a book, you want to start it with a big long list of names. Now that can seem boring if you don't know the big story of the Bible. If you know the big story of the Bible, which you do now, then you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, there's something going on here. When I see genealogies, I need to be thinking about the promises of God. In Matthew chapter 1, the book of what? The genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Now what do we see interesting about this? What do we learn about him? He's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. So what should that make you think of? It should make you think of the big promises. The promise to Abraham and the promise to David, right? We've already seen those promises in Genesis 12 and 2 Samuel 7, right? That God is going to make Abraham, he's going to bless him, he's going to give him a massive family, that family is going to be blessed, and they're going to bless the entire world. And God's going to give him a place, a land to live in. He promised David, I'm going to establish your household, and you are going to have a king that comes from your family, and he's going to rule forever. And he's going to accomplish incredible things. So what Jesus is saying, what Matthew is saying about Jesus in this first genealogy is, Jesus, yeah, he, he fulfills the promise of Abraham and the promise of David, as we're going to see here in just a moment. So Mark, the, the, the gospel of Mark, he actually begins by quoting from Malachi and from Isaiah. We won't go through all of it, but look how, look how he writes it here. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. Both Isaiah and Malachi are prophesying and foretold that a forerunner is going to come and announce a king. Someone is going to come before him and Mark identifies who is that forerunner. John the Baptist. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and what was he proclaiming? A baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, this may not seem big to us because we have read the whole Bible, but this is, there's, there's a sense that there's something bigger, something new that's getting ready to happen. Not only is Mark saying that this messenger is going to prepare the way, that's something that really important people have, right? A forerunner that goes before them, some, someone that's really important. But he's also proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance and forgiveness. The whole Old Testament is about how does God relate to his sinful people? What, does, what is God going to do about the sin problem? And there's a lot of blood, a lot of blood that is spilt working to provide a solution, a temporary solution to that problem. Well, something is changing. Something is changing because the promised forerunner is here and he's proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. God is doing something different. The wait, Mark is saying, is finally over. The exile, forget the physical exile, that's already been solved. The spiritual exile is about to end. God is going to do something big, namely, he's going to finally deal with the sin problem in a permanent way. Let's turn now to thinking about the kingdom of God. That's one of your first, I, I don't, I'm not following your notes exactly, so hopefully I can get all your answers there. I have no blanks or anything for you, but... Let's think about the kingdom of God. If you have read the Gospels, the kingdom of God is everywhere. Right? It's, it's all over the place. And if you don't, I mean, I don't know what you think of when you think of kingdom of God, but if you don't have a rich biblical understanding of what that means, then you're going to be impoverished as, as you read. So Jesus is talking constantly about the kingdom of God. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we see Jesus bursting onto the scene. Mark doesn't waste any time in his gospel. Bursting onto the scene. And what does he say? The time is, and he proclaimed the gospel. And he said, what? The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God, right, there's our phrase, is at hand. It's here. So repent and believe in the gospel. He's bursting on the scene and he's saying, it's here. Now, the kingdom of God is not a phrase that's used by the prophets. It's, it's used by Jesus and it's constantly used by Jesus to describe what he's doing. Right? If, you, if you read carefully, you'll notice. So often, Jesus actually uses it to summarize all that the prophets were longing for. And all that, they were, all that they were hoping for. In other words, Jesus understood that he is the fulfillment of all that the prophets hoped for. 
You can see an example of it. I don't think I have this text up on the screen. Um, We see an example of it in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is quoting one of the prophets and then he announces the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that that he is the coming. He ushers in the kingdom of God. But now let's turn to the matter of fulfillment in Christ. Okay? Now... Here's an important thing to know. Jesus identified himself as the fulfillment of all that the prophets longed for. Now, this may not seem radical or new or revolutionary, but let's think about what that phrase means. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, look what Jesus says. But blessed are your eyes, for they see... And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. What were they seeing that was different than the prophets? Jesus, right? The fulfillment of all the prophets were longing for. And and did not see it. And hear what you hear. And they did not hear it. In other words, Jesus is saying, I fulfill all of the prophets' longings and all of their expectations. All right. Now remember, the prophets talked a lot more than about just a Messiah. They talked about a return from exile. They talked about a second exodus. They talked about a blessing. You remember how we saw last week where there was so much fruit that when you plant something in the ground, it will grow so quickly. When you plant a grape in the ground, it'll grow so quickly that it'll have to be harvested and they'll have to beat it into wine. And before they've beaten it into wine, more grapes will grow. It's a picture of incredible abundance, right? So they were talking about more than just the Messiah. So often we think of the prophets as like just being Isaiah chapter 9 or just being Isaiah chapter 40 or maybe Jeremiah 31 or maybe Ezekiel 31 if you're risky or something, right? 38. It's, it's much more than that. They're a massive part of the canon. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he is fulfilling all of the longings and expectations of the prophets. Do you remember Zechariah? When he, when he heard about the prophecy, of, when he prophesied after hearing that, that he was going to bear a son, John, who's going to bring, go before the Christ, he's saying that he, he's finally, God is doing what all the prophets have longed for. Perhaps a clearer text for us in this is, is Jesus saying in John chapter 5, when he's saying to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And what does he say about the scriptures? Oh, what, first of all, what are the scriptures in Jesus' day? The Old Testament, right? That's, that, so that's what he's talking about. What does he say about those scriptures? Who are they about? They're about Jesus. They bear witness to me. We could also see that in Luke chapter 22. In other words, Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is about me. Now, this brings us to a key point that I would like to propose tonight. The New Testament, in my judgment, never leads us to expect that there will be any other fulfillment of the Old Testament promises other than their fulfillment in Christ. Now, that may not sound interesting to you until I start working some of that out a little bit tonight. The promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, all of them. Not in other ways, okay? We'll see how that works out tonight. I think you have that on your phrase. This is what this incredible verse means. For all the promises 
of God find their yes in him. In other words, all the promises of Christ are fulfilled in Jesus. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That is a very important text for understanding how is it that Jesus relates to the promises in the Old Testament. This is why, let me go ahead and make an application for us. This is why in my humble, I had a professor, he said, in my humble but accurate opinion. In my humble but accurate opinion, this is why we should never expect any of the promises in the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament to be fulfilled in the current nation state of Israel. Okay? This is why I do not believe that there will be a new temple that is built to fulfill Old Testament promises. They, the prophets looked ahead and said a new temple is going to be built. But what did they mean? Okay? Here's, here's why. Let me explain it like this. None of this is on your notes. Just look up and, and try to trace this with me. This would be like expecting God to renew a model that he's already retired or dismantled. The whole point of the model, and the model we've seen has lots of parts. There's a temple, there's a sacrificial system, there's a priesthood, and there's land, and, and there's many other things. All of that model was to do what? What was the point? To anticipate Christ. That's what we've seen in this course. All of it was to anticipate Christ. The whole point was Christ. The whole point of the Abrahamic covenant was to anticipate Christ. The whole point of the Davidic covenant was to anticipate Christ. The whole point of the the Noetic covenant and the covenant with creation is all anticipating Christ. Those were part of the temporary reality. Christ is the permanent reality. Okay? This is going to radically affect the way you interpret the New Testament. This may be a helpful quote for some of you. If you don't understand, don't worry, no problem. The New Testament, in the New Testament, the interpretation of the Old Testament is not literal, it's Christological. As the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, it does not do it literally, it does it Christologically. In other words, it sees all of it pointing to Christ. All right. If you don't understand those words, no problem. When the New Testament reads the Old Testament, it sees everything through Jesus, right? We found our yes and amen in Christ. And the reason for this is because the coming of Christ transforms all, every single component of the kingdom in the Old Testament into a gospel reality in the New Testament. Okay, let me say that again. The coming of Christ transforms every component of the Old Testament kingdom into a gospel reality of the new kingdom. The gospel changes everything. I've said that a thousand times, and by God's grace, I will say it ten thousand more. The gospel changes. It transforms everything. Let me try to give you an illustration. Suppose the year is 1910, and there's a wealthy farmer who makes a promise to, or wealthy, wealthy man, rather, father, who makes a promise to his five-year-old son that on your 21st birthday, son, I will give you a horse. All right? The year's 1910. What are horses used for in 1910? Transportation, right? So this is like saying, hey, I'm going to give you 
a way to get, I'm going to give you some wheels, man. You can go to Sonic and do whatever it is you do, right? Whatever it is you do, right? So between 1910 and 1920s, a significant technological uh, invention came out, and that was the invention of the automobile. So when the birthday finally comes, the father gives the boy a car instead of giving him the horse. Did the father keep his promise? He, he kept it, but not literally. You see what I mean? He, he, he kept it. The promise is fulfilled, but not literally. He did not break his promise. The father, the father could not have promised his son a car because the son would have no concept for even understanding a car. It wasn't, it wasn't invented yet. It, wasn't, it wouldn't make sense to him. In a similar way, God made promises to Israel using categories that they could understand. And then gradually over time, he broadened and expanded and exploded those categories. Like, horses are great. What You know, I'm sure. If you're a horse person, that's great. I'm going to keep my car, okay? You can have your horses, but, you know, I took, I took three kids to the beach. Not doing that on a horse. My minivan, which is awesome, is superior to the horse. Horses are great. I love horses, I guess. But cars are better, right? The people of Israel, they were familiar with nation. They were familiar with temple and sacrifice and rest and prosperity in a land. But the actual fulfillment blows up the boundaries of these categories. You remember, you remember Jesus' disciples? They were like, hey, are you going to finally bring the kingdom? Man, their, their categories were small. He blew up their categories. And it wasn't until after he was gone that they were like, oh, I, see, I get it now, right? That's what he does. To expect a literal fulfillment misses the point. And not only that, but it damages the beauty of the overall big picture. So we don't need to look for literal fulfillment in a modern day Israel, right? We don't need to look for a literal fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple somewhere in the Middle East. That would bypass and that would short-circuit the reality of Christ because Christ is the fulfillment and the reality of all these promises. That's like taking a motor car but then being like, where's the horse? Got to find the horse, right? Where's the horse? Got to find the horse. So here's, here's the big picture and here's one of the first big conclusions. I think I have a slide that says big conclusion like three times. I couldn't decide. Here's one of the first big conclusions. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And as we'll see tonight, Jesus is God's people, Jesus is God's place, and Jesus is God's rule and blessing. Okay? All that is setting you up, and let's kind of look through some of this together. I hope that you're awake. This first one is probably the hardest. So each week we've gone through and said, what is God's people, what is God's place, and what is God's rule and blessing? Okay, now let's think about this a little bit. Point number one, Jesus is God's people. Jesus is, I realize that grammar is, is weird, but right, that's the paradigm that we've got going on. Jesus is the people of God. Let me, let me explain this. Think back to the very beginning. Think back to the Week one, which is the pattern of the kingdom, right? Which is where? Eden, right? And Eden is where we saw the pattern. Who were God's people? 
Adam and Eve. All right, let's think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first people, and God placed them in the garden, but what did they do? They failed. So God evicted them. He kicked them out. He exiled them, just like he did to his people. He exiled them out of the garden, and he made a new start, I'll summarize, with Israel. A new start with Israel. He called Israel, like Adam and Eve, to be his people and to reflect his character. This is why he gave them laws. This is why he told them don't intermarry. This is why he gave them all these regulations. They were to reflect his glory and his character to the world in a way that no one else was called to do. Adam and Eve failed, and so God gave the job to Israel. Of course, you know how it grows, but I'll... They failed. Adam failed, and Israel, the new people, what did they do? They failed. So what happened? They were exiled. We see this numerous times. They were sent into the wilderness for 40 years. Later, once they finally got into the promised land, they failed again. So God sent them into Babylon for 70 years. They, they failed. This is the pattern in the Old Testament. Even the heroes fail every time, basically. Every time the hero of the Old Testament fails, God's guy fails. Even David, even Moses, even Abraham. But here's what's beautiful. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam was supposed to reflect God's glory. He didn't. Abraham was supposed to reflect God's glory. He didn't. Israel was supposed to reflect God's glory. They didn't. Jesus reflected God's glory. So here's what that means. Jesus is what God intended. I froze. There we go. Jesus is what God intended for humanity to be. Jesus, we look at Jesus and we see this is what God intended for Adam and Eve. This is what God intended for humanity to be like. Jesus is the the most fully human human to ever have existed. The New Testament portrays Jesus as the true Adam and the true Israel. So let's think about what that means. This is going to help you understand Galatians and Romans and Hebrews and probably the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is the true Adam. Now let me just go ahead and tell you. uh, Actually, I'll hold off you. Jesus himself identifies with Adam. He describes himself as Adam, which makes sense, right? If you understand what I just described. He described himself as Adam. Jesus was, like Adam, a real human being. He eats, he sleeps in the front of boats, apparently, and he even dies. Jesus descended from Adam. Luke chapter 3, the genealogy at the beginning of Luke makes a big deal that Jesus descended from Adam. Matthew doesn't bother with that. Luke does. When Jesus was baptized by John, he identified with humanity. But Jesus is not totally like Adam. There are many ways that he's unlike Adam. Praise God. When Jesus is tempted, he did not sin. He's the only human being who does not deserve to be exiled from God's presence. The only human being who should not have been kicked out of the garden. We also know that Jesus redeemed those who are in Adam. On the cross, he willingly took the punishment of sinners so that all who are bound up in Adam can have a new chance. So if, if we trust in the new Adam, Jesus, 
then we can be bound up into his new humanity. What? If you identify with the old Adam, you're going to identify with the old Adam's fate, suffering and death. But if you identify with the new Adam, if he is, if you are united in him, then you get all the blessings of true humanity. This is why sin doesn't make sense for believers. Because God created us to be fully human and sin is by its very nature unhuman. Not just the big stuff, the little stuff, all of it. Jesus is the new Adam. And so he is the head of a new humanity, which by the way, this new humanity, they can raise from the dead. Good thing. They can walk through walls apparently. This new humanity, and they also eat, praise God. This new humanity is not headed by Adam, but is headed by Jesus, the righteous new Adam. The key text for us here is in Romans chapter 5. Why is my stuff not coming not coming up. Got a delay. Try this again. Y'all want this, the slides, right? Let's see if it'll come back up. Don't do it wirelessly, they said. You might have problems, they said. <laughs> no, I said. I tested it. Surely it won't have problems. I spent four hours making slides. Surely that wouldn't be wasted. Here we go. Hey, John Metcalf. Can you come here? Oh, wait. Never mind. Can you come get this plan again while I keep talking? Can you just fight that? Thanks. Okay, don't look at John and don't look at the TVs. What's the last thing I said? Who knows? Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Think, think about this text, right? So, for by one man's disobedience, the many became sinners. So by one man's obedience, the... Who knows it? Many will become righteous. Romans 5.19 is the clearest way where Jesus, Paul is saying, Jesus is the new Adam. But Jesus is also the true Israel. This is the most complicated point that I have tonight. Jesus is also the true Israel. Okay? I don't have all these texts for you. Did it hang, hang up there? Bless John. Everybody give John a hand. Okay, this is the most complicated point that I have tonight. So try try to try to bear with me and and under and try to track with this. Okay, Jesus is not only the true Adam, but he is the true Israel. Okay, Jesus himself identifies with Israel. Jesus is called God's son. Right? In Matthew chapter 2, look at this text. This is telling the birth story. Uh, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Who is he talking about? Who, in this text, who is the son? 
Uh, okay, hang on. I'm sorry. This is kind of hard because I have one verse up here, right? So, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I had called my son. So, you're, you're all right. It's Jesus and, and Israel. But it's specifically talking about Jesus, right? Because Jesus stayed, um, stayed in Egypt until Herod died. Now, why is that important? Well, it's because that key word there is son. So Jesus is called my son. But this is a quotation of Hosea chapter 1 where Israel is called the son. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. This is in Hosea. Who is this talking about? The nation of Israel. Okay, so the nation of Israel is called the Son, and Jesus is called the Son. One more text. This was the one that clicked for me. In Exodus chapter 4, okay, see, you've got to know the story or this is, you're going to be lost, right? In Exodus chapter 4, what does God tell Moses to say to Pharaoh? Israel is my firstborn son. Do you see? Israel is called God's son. What is Adam's name? The Son of God, right? Son, son, right? So Adam's the first son. Well, he does a bad job. So Israel's the next son. They do a bad job. Then Jesus comes on the scene. What's, who's he? He's the son of God, right? Do you see how this fits? The key thing you need to know is Jesus is called son and Israel is called son. And then think about Matthew. I don't have that one up there. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus stands and he's baptized and it says what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here's the key point. Matthew is deliberately identifying Jesus with the nation of Israel. Israel is God's son and Jesus is God's son. But, ignore that verse for right now. Jesus is also very different from Israel as we have already seen. Especially when Jesus went into the wilderness. When Israel went into the wilderness, what happened? They disobeyed, right? That's what Hebrews says uh, in 1 Corinthians, right? They disobeyed. But what did Jesus do when he went into the wilderness? He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not fail. Jesus failed. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. But Jesus also acted like the new Israel. How many disciples did he have? 12, right? Jesus is calling a new nation. Doesn't need those 12 tribes anymore. He's calling a new nation for himself. The new Israel will be founded on 12 disciples, and their profession will be what establishes the church. Now, think about it like this Jesus also rejected ethnic Israel. Now, look at the screen. Jesus said, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, right? He's talking to the leaders of Israel. I'm going to take the kingdom of God away from you and give it to a people producing its fruit. Jesus rejected ethnic Israel. He's saying that it's going to be taken away. The kingdom's going to be taken away. Why would Jesus do this? It's because he's creating a new nation, a new people that actually obeys him. Ethnic nation, they didn't obey Ever. They never got it right. God is creating a new Israel, a new nation that will obey him. You remember his promise to Abraham? Create, I'm going to make you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. 
Here's the big point. It is not enough to be ethnically Israel. You must be spiritually Israel. Tracking with me? It's not enough to be ethnically Israel. You must also be spiritually Israel. If you don't buy it, let's look at Romans. Romans chapter 9. Look at this. This is huge. Not all of the children of Abraham, okay, ethnic Israel, not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see what he just did there? This means that it's not the children of the flesh, ethnic Israel, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Do you see? From here on out, true Israel is not an ethnic people. It is a spiritual people. And this is why God destroys the temple. But from here on out, especially starting in 70 AD, these people, God's people, are those who are created by the gospel. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's a new people. Jesus is the firstborn of, the new, of this new nation. He is its head, and all who are in Jesus are now in Israel. Another key text, this is what worked for me. If you are in Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. All the promises that God made through Abraham, they're for those who are in Christ. So God has rejected ethnic Israel. Now there's more to say about that, I know, but we, we've got to keep we've got to keep going through there. So who are this is the most complicated point, who are God's people? Jesus is God's people. He is the Israel and he is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Israel and Jesus is the new Adam. All right? Let's go on to the next point. Jesus is also God's place. Jesus is God's people, and Jesus is God's place. If you think back into the Old Testament, think about some of God's places. In the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed God's blessing because they were in God's presence, right? God walked in the garden. In Israel, God drew near to his people by living in their midst. Sometimes in a cloud, sometimes in a tabernacle, sometimes in a temple, sometimes in an ark, right? Remember, we always have seen that God's presence means God's blessing. This is why exile means God's curse. The temple was a place to be with God, to enter into his presence. But in Jesus' ministry, Jesus blows this up. And shows that the temple was just an early shadow of the real thing. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the place, the road, the way to enter into God's presence. If you want to be with God, you got to get Jesus. You don't need the temple now. You don't need the tabernacle. You don't need the ark. You need Jesus. Jesus is not only the true human, but he is the true God. And in Christ, God himself has drawn among us. Pastor Mark picked up on this this morning, so I'll go quickly. But the first point we see is Jesus is the true tabernacle. We saw it in Revelation 21, right? This story is beginning to end. John 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. Jesus is the true tabernacle. 
Jesus is also the true temple, okay? Now, let's think about this. Do you remember when Jesus turned over the money tables, right? It's a great story. Tell it to the kids. Great story. Um, I tease Tony about it sometimes when he's counting money and doing stuff in there. But after Jesus cleansed the temple, the Jews got upset and they said, you know, what right do you have to do this? How dare you? Who do you, who do you think you are? And what did Jesus say to them in John chapter 2? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. All right. Jesus just shifted from a building to something else. So you and I need to shift from a building to something else, right? Three days and I will raise it up again, right? And what do they do? They're like, oh man, it took 40 something years to build this temple. You're a liar. We need, you know, we need to stone you. And so they, they freak out about it. And so Jesus like dresses them down and explains why their logic is terrible. But then he makes it clear that he was not talking about the temple, the stones. He's talking about his body, right? He was speaking, verse 21, about the temple of his body. The temple was going to be destroyed. It happened in 70 AD, about 40 or 50 years after Jesus lived. But Daniel, and this is exactly what Daniel prophesied, won't get into that, but it was never to be rebuilt, not officially. The temple would never be rebuilt. We don't need it. There's no use for the temple. This is why on the cross, God like dismantled the Holy of Holies because there's no need for it, right? God himself is destroying it. Jesus is the temple. So think back to Ezekiel, all right? Is your head hurting? I know, bear with me. Think back to Ezekiel's prophecy about the new temple. Remember now? This massive, beautiful temple that is full of living water, Ezekiel 40 to 48. Scott, out of this new temple is going to be a river that flows, giving life to the whole world. John chapter 7. This is so fun. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, What? I got a river. I got a river. If you want to drink, come to Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever, uh, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? Now, Jesus is talking about a lot here. He's, he's got, there's a lot that he's, that he's doing. But the picture is, what is he going to do? Jesus is going to give his spirit not only did Jesus dwell among us, but the Spirit's going to come and He's going to dwell in us. By the way, what are our bodies called? You can't make this stuff up. Like, you just can't make this stuff up, right? Praise God. Jesus is the temple, and He's going to give His Spirit, which brings life to those who, are believe, who believe. And He's going to give it to His people, which are gathered from all over the world. This river flows out into all the world. Go read Ezekiel 40 to 48. All right. Final point here is Jesus is God's people. Jesus is God's place. And this one's much easier. Jesus is also God's rule and he's the blessing. All right. He's the king. Now, do you remember how we said that it's only those who submit to God's rule that enjoy his blessing? Remember how we said that? Disobedience will always bring pain in your life. Obedience will eventually always bring joy. Well, that is true as well. Except we're not very good at obeying. Jesus is good at it. Jesus perfectly obeys. And so he has everlasting life. Amen, brother. 
Jesus is the one who perfectly obeys, and Jesus is the one who provides all blessing. Let's think about how he does this. The big one, the big obvious one, is that Jesus brings the new covenant. The first place, and probably the most important place to see how Jesus is God's blessing is the new covenant. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, hey look, he's like, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I complete them all, right? He's beginning to introduce the new covenant. In his life, Jesus obeyed all the demands of the law. He didn't abolish them. He fulfilled them. He came and did it. Which means, right, if you remember all the blessings and the promises of Deuteronomy, Jesus deserves all of the blessings of obedience. If you disobey God, you'll be cursed. If you obey God, you'll be blessed. That's the pattern. Well, what did Jesus do? He obeyed, man. He obeyed perfectly. He achieved and earned all of the blessings <coughs> of obedience. What's wild about this is that he deserves the blessing of law keepers. He doesn't need to face the curse of the law, which is reserved for law breakers. But on the cross, he takes on the curse of the law breaker. This is the glorious swap of the gospel. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus makes the glorious swap of the new covenant possible. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The death of Jesus, which is the law keeper, paying the penalty of the law breaker, brings in and ushers in the new covenant where sin is dealt with, not for the day, not for the hour, not for the year, but done. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's done. We don't need no goats. We don't need bulls. We don't need any of that. We don't need a priest. We don't need a temple. Jesus finished it. Hebrews 9, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The new covenant is precious to you, brother and sister, so that those who are in him, who are called, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's what Jesus earned. Since his death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There's so much that could be said here, but let me just put it like this. What is so different about the new covenant? What is different about the new covenant from the old covenant? Well, I think the biggest thing is this, and we'll connect it like this. In the new covenant, complete forgiveness of sins is available. Not a sacrificial system. A complete forgiveness of sins is available. Which means that man, which is separated from God by sin, can now be made be brought back to God, which means intimacy. The new covenant means intimacy, and if you're with God, what do you get? Blessing. Do you see? The new covenant means you get God. You get blessing. Man, got to keep going. Jesus is the new covenant, but Jesus is also the new king, right? He just rides on donkeys, not horses. Blows everybody's expectations. There's many things that point to it, and I'll go through this quickly. The miracles point to the kingdom of God. They are signs. If you think about all the miracles, many of y'all Sunday school teachers, you're teaching on another miracle next week. The miracles are pointing to the fact of there's a new creation coming. In the new creation, there's no dead people. There's no lame people. No blind people. No demonic people, right? And the, the, the wine doesn't run out. I'll let you think about that one later. 
right? First miracle. The, the miracles of Jesus are anticipating the new creation. Jesus, when Jesus came, he started undoing all the effects of the curse. He started fixing it all. He couldn't help himself. When Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, the Pharisees called him Satan. But Jesus' reply was important. He said, you know, if it's the Spirit of God, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then guess what? The kingdom of God is here. It's among you. It has come. The people started putting this together, and that's why in the next verse, I know it's not on the screen, they started saying, could this be the son of David? Could this one be the promised one? He's the king. But if the miracles don't convince you, the resurrection should. That's the clearest sign that he's king. Jesus was not the type of king that everyone expected, right? Remember, he was transitioning away from the old model and everyone was confused. Even the new church was confused about this for a while. He's transitioning away from the old model. And after this king, after riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and being murdered, he conquered. He rose. Jesus' greatest moment of victory was when he defeated the enemies of sin and death, set the captives free, and then rose to be their king, rose to rule them. The resurrection proclaims that this man is the son of David and the son of God. He is the king. But Jesus is the source of God's blessing. He's the source of God's blessing. You remember how we said on the seventh day, God rested, right? When he created the world, the seventh day he rested and he didn't stop. He is still resting and he has invited us. Man was created to share in God's rest. It doesn't mean no work. It means no toil. It means no friction, no conflict with creation. It means the full human as God made him to be. Well, when Jesus came back, what did he do? He declared the time of rest is here again, which is why I believe the Sabbath has been completely fulfilled in Christ, which is why I might wash my car on a Sunday sometime. Don't tell my mom. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He came offering rest, not temporary rest. Adam and Eve, they knew a little rest in the garden. The people of Israel, they knew some in the partial kingdom. You remember again and again, the land had rest. Even the, the farming laws told, told them to give the land rest. But all of that was temporary. It was a shadow. The resurrection marks the beginning of a new age. And if you trust Jesus, and if you trust in him, you can go from death to life to eternal life to everlasting life, which is eternal rest. We get to enjoy life as God intended it to be. You get to enjoy humanity as God intended it to be. You will enjoy relationships as God intended it to be, free from the curse of sin. The big point here is that the kingdom and its blessings have come. Why? The king's here. The king is here. We don't have all the effects yet. We don't have it fully realized. But the king has come. He defeated the enemy and he's established his rule, not publicly, but in the hearts of man and of his new people. And it's through us that the world experiences true blessing. This is why people go be missionaries in northern Cyprus. To spread the blessing, fulfilling the promise that God made. All of this blessing is going to the world. The kingdom has not yet come in fullness. We'll talk about that later. There's a delay. 
But God has created a new people and a new place, and we enjoy God's rule. So let's fill in our chart, and I'll let you, I'll let you be dismissed. Jesus Christ is the new Adam, and he's the new Israel. He is, the, he is God's people. God's place is Jesus Christ, the true tabernacle and the true temple. And God's blessing also comes through Jesus Christ who ushers in the new covenant and all who come to him, even if you're heavy and heavy laden and weary, he'll give you rest. Jesus is God's people. Jesus is God's place. Jesus is God's rule. And the Bible is true. You can build your life upon it. Let me close this in prayer, and I'll stay up here afterwards if you have questions. Or, or... Father, we praise you. We praise you for Christ. I pray, Lord, that even though we've gone through this quickly and we've heard lots of things that may be new, lots of different texts, I pray that no one would leave here feeling smart or feeling confused, but that we would all be in awe of Christ Jesus, our King. Father, enjoy more domain in our hearts because of what we've seen. And we'll give you all the glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.